Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A smoke crisis hits New York City and vast swaths of the country. Find out the latest developments in how people are coping with the hazy conditions. In Virginia, a 19-year-old is charged with two counts of second-degree murder for opening fire at a graduation ceremony. Here's what local and state officials had to say. There's yet another new candidate in the Republican primary race, increasing the total up to 12. We'll show you the latest from the well-known contender. Conservatives on Capitol Hill saying they've lost trust in their party's leadership. The group is making their discontent heard. We hear from one of them about a potential new set of demands for Speaker McCarthy. And is it getting more expensive to live? We hear from Congressman Josh Burkeen on the nation's mounting debt and how it will impact generations to come. A thick blanket of smoke is covering New York City due to raging wildfires in Canada. NTD's Jason Perry hears from the mayor and brings us the most recent developments. Heavy smoke from wildfires in Canada have caused the skies in New York City to turn orange. New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke earlier today at the NYC Emergency Management Headquarters. He's asking residents to avoid outdoor activity. Uh, this is not the day to train for a marathon or to do an outside event with your children. Stay inside, close windows and doors, and use air purifiers, purifiers if you have them. And the smoke is not just in New York. The U.S. National Weather Service issued quality air alerts from New England all the way to South Carolina. We had dangerously high levels of wildfire smoke from thousands of miles away, thousands of miles away. From the gloom over Yankee Stadium to the smoky haze obscuring our skyline. And it's obscuring vision for pilots too. The Federal Aviation Administration issued a ground stop for New York City's LaGuardia Airport due to wildfire smoke. Canada's wildfire season appears to have started early this year. Already, more than 9 million acres have been burned by wildfires, which is about 15 times more than the normal amount at this point in the year. And the United States is providing much needed assistance. He directed his team to provide impacted communities whatever support they need. Our team here at the White House is in touch with the government of Canada. We have already deployed over 600 U.S. firefighters and personnel, as well as equipment like water bombers to help Canada battle the fires. So how do people in New York City feel about the smoky air? I spoke to some people earlier today. You know, we're from Seattle and it's way worse. The, it's been way worse there, so we can take it. Yeah, yesterday I went out in my bicycle, uh, Flushing Park, and I fell it. And I was, instead of being energetic, I was, I was weak. I was in North Carolina yesterday and uh, it was the same alert there and I think they thought it was maybe burning wheat fields or something. They didn't know what it was. Um, so I'm surprised that it's, it's here as well. Uh, no, I, I leave tonight, so yeah, maybe I'll just try and stay indoors a little bit more today. But. New York City public schools canceled all outdoor activities Wednesday, but still remain open. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. In Virginia, a 19-year-old suspect was arraigned this morning on two charges of second-degree murder. He's accused of shooting a recent graduate and his father shortly after a high school graduation ceremony. NTD's Arlene Richards has more details. We are in the very early stages of this investigation. 
Some of the information I provided may change as we go forward. During a press conference on Tuesday, Richmond Interim Police Chief Rick Edwards said two people had been taken into custody in connection with a shooting after a high school graduation. One of them is 19-year-old Amari Pollard. The other individual was confirmed to be uninvolved in the incident. Police said Pollard gunned down Sean Jackson, who was 18, and his father, Renzo Smith, after a year-long feud with Jackson. The shooter was armed with four handguns and fired into a crowd as it left a theater where the ceremony was held. Mayor of Richmond, LeVar Stoney, said the incident was traumatic for the graduating students. Whether it's in Richmond, whether it's in Virginia, whether it's in the United States, this should not be happening anywhere. A child should be able to go to their graduation and walk out their graduation and enjoy the accomplishment with their friends and their family. A nine-year-old girl who was related to Jackson and Smith was hit by a car and is now being treated for leg injuries. Police reported that at least 12 others were injured or treated for anxiety. Virginia's Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears said in a social media post that she was angry. She told WTVR authorities need to put people in jail. That's what we need. We need leadership, true leadership. Because I tell you what, this is not happening where the movers and shakers of this community live. It should not have happened at a graduation, a life event, if I had the accountability and the responsibility, this wouldn't keep happening. The people who are elected here, they're in charge. They must make that adjustment. Pollard's being held without bond. He wasn't represented by an attorney at the proceeding. The judge has postponed the case until later this month. Meanwhile, all of the high school graduations in the district have been canceled. Tiffany? A group of frustrated Republicans is making their discontent with GOP leadership heard by stalling a current priority. The group could soon make fresh demands of Speaker Kevin McCarthy after they were disappointed about the debt limit deal. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more details from Capitol Hill. So what we're seeing here is basically a replay of what we saw back in January when that group of 19 conservatives railed against Kevin McCarthy, making demands of him in exchange for giving him the votes needed to take the speaker's gavel. Of course, the situation playing out right now is less dramatic than that week of voting was. Now, basically, the deal here is that that group of frustrated conservatives have blocked debate on a GOP priority bill, one that counters the Biden administration's efforts to phase out gas stoves. You, we want you to have a voice. We want you to be You're not going to get 100% of what you want, so you can't take hostages. I've got a challenge over there on the Senate side with even Senate Republicans who now just want to blow up the deal to spend more money. Now, this group of dissenting Republicans met this morning to discuss their next step and how they can hold House Speaker Kevin McCarthy accountable for those promises he made the group back in January. I spoke to one of those members, Congressman Norman, who said that their specific focus is on the fiscal future. Here's my conversation with Congressman Norman. We got appropriations coming up. What role is leadership going to play to get spending down? We can't keep going like we're going. Economic security is national security. Do you think they're productive that you all will come yes. up with a, a platform to present to McCarthy? Is that kind of the goal here? Uh, it's up to him to solve it. Well, I see. He, he decided to go get the Democrats. <laughs> I mean, he decided to go get them when it was tight. You know, we, it was defeated. 
And as this drama plays out, another GOP-led effort is likely to overshadow it tomorrow. Republicans are aiming to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. Republicans accuse the FBI of shielding a document that alleges misconduct on the part of President Biden. The document they're referring to is in the FBI's possession, and it alleges that President Biden, when serving as vice president, received millions of dollars in fraudulent cash from a foreign national to influence policy decisions. Now, the Oversight Committee is planning to hold that hearing tomorrow at 9 a.m., although the FBI has said this escalation is unwarranted. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific is on the rise. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are now working together, creating a new task force to counter the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. Here are the details from today's announcement. Together we're launching the Bipartisan Indo-Pacific Task Force and showing the Chinese Communist Party and the world that we will not play their games or give them so much as an inch in this region. On Wednesday, House representatives created the Indo-Pacific Task Force designed to counter Chinese aggression in the area. The task force consists of 14 representatives, seven Democrats and seven Republicans. Multiple members represent island regions in the Indo-Pacific. An equally balanced 14-member group with perspective from their various committees, adding expertise to all sides of examining the malign influence of the Chinese Communist Party in the Pacific Islands. That should tell you something about how important this issue is to every American. The task force will hold meetings to conduct oversight over U.S. territories in the Indo-Pacific. It will also provide policy recommendations to advance U.S. interest in the region. NTD's Melina Weiskup attended Wednesday's announcement, speaking with task force member James Moylan of Guam. Uh, China's goal is uh, to control the Pacific area uh, from the first island chain and Guam being the second island chain. China has been provoking U.S. military aircraft and vessels in the region. Just on Saturday, a Chinese Navy ship in the Taiwan Strait cut sharply across the path of an American destroyer, forcing the U.S. vessel to slow down to avoid a collision. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby on Monday commented on the near collision. We are a Pacific power. We're not going anywhere. We've got serious commitments in that part of the world. Five of our seven treaty alliances are in the Indo-Pacific. He added that the U.S. flies and sails in international waters and airspaces, not giving China a reason for its aggression. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. As inflation rages on, concerns are rising over the nation's mounting debt. It's now around $248,000 per taxpayer. How does the recently passed debt ceiling deal play into all this? We hear from Congressman Josh Burkeen. Congressman Burkeen, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thank you, Tiffany. So a default has been averted. President Biden is touting the accomplishments of this bipartisan deal that raised the debt ceiling. And Goldman Sachs just lowered the recession fears to 25 percent after this deal was struck. Now, you voted no on this bill. In your mind, who are the winners and losers here? And how do you see this impacting the economy? Uh, so the, the, I would say the losers in this deal are our kids and our grandkids. Uh, we, we have a $31.5 trillion national indebtedness. We're going to overspend this year by $1.5 trillion. If you go back exactly 40 years ago to 1983, the size of our gross national debt was $1.4 trillion. 
So 40 years ago, accumulation of 200 years of debt loading put us at 1.4 trillion. We're gonna overspend this year in one year what it took us up to 1983 to accumulate some total of gross national debt. And the only way that this gross national debt of 31 and a half trillion, which you ascribe to every child who opens its eyes and takes in its first breath of air, it's $94,000 that that child owes in that hospital uh, coming into life as a, a United, United States citizen. And the only way that child's gonna pay that off is through a lower standard of living. And Congressman, in terms of debt, you actually just co-sponsored a new bill titled National Debt Awareness Resolution. So tell us about this bill. Well, it, it just was going to affix uh, within the chamber uh, a debt clock just to remind us of, of how uh, you know problematic the numbers on a daily basis continue to, to add up and what that means, that visual. But I want to go back to just you know more than, than just a reminder. Uh, the United States Treasury report that hardly anybody uh, paid attention to last year said that if you take all assets in America and if you combine the $31.5 trillion along with unfunded liabilities of Medicare and unfunded liabilities within Social Security and different trust programs, what we owe veterans uh, for pension, what we owe federal employees for pension, you add it all together, our real gross national debt plus unfunded obligations is, is north of $120 trillion. I also want to put it in contrast with what passed just a month ago out of Congress. We passed the Limit, Save, and Grow Act to give an extension to the debt ceiling to put it, move it towards March. But that bill, year one, was going to cut $900 billion. This deal that uh, was in, you know, supported by more Democrats than Republicans as it passed the House, it, it is scored by Heritage to save $12 billion. What Republicans said we wanted to save a month ago in Limit, Save, and Grow was $900 billion. $12 billion is 1% of that, Tiffany, 1% of it. And Congressman, in terms of this deal, there's a lot of focus on government spending. There is the argument that government spending helps drive GDP, and that slowing that would actually slow the economy. So what's your take on that? I think that economists have been warning us for years that once we get past 90% debt-to-GDP ratio, you have a lag on, on our economy. And you have different studies over the years that have pointed that out. And, and people that would come from different ideological spectrums, sides of the spectrum, say the same thing, more or less. We have got to cut government spending, and we've got to unleash uh, an economic boom to give this nation, our children and our grandchildren, a chance to inherit liberty, the blessing of liberty as the, as the Constitution preamble uh, prescribes. Sounds like the ones who suffer are the American taxpayers. But Congressman Rakeen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Hey, God bless you, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. Former VP Mike Pence is officially joining the race for president. Though far behind Trump and DeSantis in the latest polls, some voters think he has a real shot. NTD's Chris Spears was at the campaign launch today. Mike Pence put in his hat for the 2024 presidential race today here in Des Moines, Iowa. He spoke about his conservative policies, which look a lot like Donald Trump's and Ron DeSantis's. He said he would unite the country, and he made it seem like January 6th would be a key dividing line between his campaign and Donald Trump's. Let's take a look. We'll end Joe Biden's trillion-dollar spending spree that's driving inflation. 
making life more expensive for every American, and we'll set our nation back on a path to a balanced budget. We'll break the unholy alliance between Wall Street and big government that's forcing radical ESG policies on the private sector. And when I am president, American families will have a champion in the White House. We will give parents the freedom to choose where their children go to school. We will reject radical propaganda, and we will demand respect for our history and religious freedom. He also had this to say about January 6th. I did my duty that day. I kept my oath to ensure the peaceful transfer of power under the Constitution of the United States of America. Now let's hear what voters had to say about Pence as a candidate. Very excited about his candidacy. Um, I, we need adults back in the room. Uh, and I don't believe we've had that for the last couple of years. Maybe even the last year of the Trump administration, we didn't have adults in the room. He is a fine person. I know that. Um, and I am very interested to hear how he's going to lead this country. And I uh, think that Pence is willing to do something for veterans. He talked about his father and his other family members being veterans. He's a, a good man, and he's not a hater. And so if he disagrees with someone, he will not hate them, and uh, he will not encourage anybody else to hate them. And that's something that would uh, do a lot to uh, unite our country. The latest morning consult poll for GOP primaries has Trump leading at 56 percent. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis follows at 22 percent and Pence at third with 7 percent. Also today, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum entered the Republican race for president. Burgum is a former software entrepreneur who enacted a slate of laws this year that advanced conservative policies on culture war issues. He highlighted his small-town roots and business experience in his campaign announcement. And coming up, the CEO of CNN is out following a short but tumultuous tenure. What might this mean for CNN going forward? And after a California school district announced recognition of Pride Month, locals protested at its headquarters. There were counter-protesters too, some from Antifa. That and more after the break. Welcome back. CNN head Chris Licht has been ousted from the network after a year at the helm. His departure followed a series of missteps and battered ratings. Entity's Sam Wong brings us the latest. His brief 16-month tenure has come to a close. CNN captain Chris Licht made his departure from the network on Wednesday, and he'll be replaced for now by a four-person team. During a morning editorial call, the head of the outlet's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, announced a leadership change. He said that Lick had a good run at CNN and noted that his job was never going to be easy, especially at a time of great disruption and transformation. The chief executive took over from Jeff Zucker in 2022, aiming to lead the network toward the political center. Lick apologized to CNN employees just days ago after the Atlantic magazine published a damaging profile story on him. He said he never meant to overshadow the network's achievement and promised to regain the trust of his employees. But even before the article, Lick's leadership was beset by controversy. He recently came under fire for his defense of a CNN town hall event that featured former President Trump. The program even created tension among his own staffers. The firing of the network's morning show anchor Don Lemon also sparked drama. To discuss what lies ahead for CNN, I sat down with political columnist and editor-at-large for the Epic Times, Roger Simon. 
So uh, is it what the future is for CNN? Bad. <laughs> uh, it, other than a complete, a complete makeover and maybe a name change along with it, uh, I don't see much hope. Simon added that alternative platforms such as Twitter will have a chance to replace outlets like CNN going forward. I think it's going in that direction, whether it's Twitter or something else or other other outlets, and there'll be multiple. Uh, there's good and bad in that, but mostly good, I think. Since Trump left office in 2021, CNN's rating has continued to plunge. Just last year, the network experienced a 27 percent drop in viewership. Its primetime audience is less than half that of rival of MSNBC, with Fox News Channel still leading among the cable networks. Sam Wong, NTD News. Controversy erupted at a Southern California school district after its recognition of Pride Month. Protesters and counter-protesters demonstrated outside the district's headquarters, along with members of Antifa. Hundreds of protesters holding both the American flag and rainbow flag gathered at the Glendale Unified School District headquarters on Tuesday. They were there to protest and counter-protest the school district for recognizing Pride Month. It was mostly peaceful until a small group of individuals started a physical fight. Police were present to ensure public safety. According to the Glendale police, at least three individuals were arrested for various charges, which includes unlawful use of pepper spray and obstructing officers. Attempts to de-escalate the crowd failed, so police ordered them to disperse at 6 p.m. To get a clearer picture, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with Epoch Times reporter Michaela Riccaforte, who was on the scene of the protest. Joining us now from Southern California is Epic Times reporter Michaela Riccaforte. Michaela, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Jack. So you were on the ground at the scene of the protest. Um, can you tell us what it was like? Yeah, so um, there were a lot of uh, parents on both sides there. There were a group of maybe um, 40 to 50 parents on each side um, of the issue. Um, and then both of those groups had also taken to social media to um, call community members and supporters um, on uh, both sides to come to the um, board meeting and support them. So in addition to a group of maybe 100 uh, parents and community members, there were uh, probably 100 more on each side um, of uh, people who had come from um, other school districts, uh, neighbors, uh, people in the community who were invested in the issue um, and wanted to come and show their support. And so what were they saying, um, these different groups? Yeah, um, I think, like I mentioned, the, the parents, um, they were saying, you know, again, they, what they wanted the other side to know was that they're not against um, the LGBT community. They are, they just want more choice. They want more um, freedom over their children and what they're learning. Um, and they want to be able to introduce gender and sexuality to their children um, on their own time, on their own terms. And that's really their main message. That's really what they were fighting for. Um, the parents also told me when after um, the fight broke out that they didn't want this to end 
this way. They didn't want um, it to be violent. They wanted a peaceful protest um, and they wanted to let the school board know uh, what, um, what they wanted for their children. And so um, the people the other side, one of the parents that I talked to said that um, they were present at the protest today because they felt like they were standing up for their children or their children's uh, peers who were LGBT and felt um, felt like their identity was being um, attacked or discriminated against. So. Um, to them, they were standing up uh, for their children. Um, and uh, some of the people that I talked to um, from outside groups were there because they also wanted to show support for um, LGBT youth and to stand up against um, quote unquote bigotry and hatred in general. And during the brawl, um, what was it the majority of people involved or was it a small minority? Who was fighting? How, how many people uh, of the total group there? I would say about five or six people total. Um, yeah, about two or three people on each side. So very few because there were hundreds of people there. Right, yeah, very few people were uh, physically fighting. Michaela Riccaforte, it was great to have you on. Thank you, Jack. New York City making its latest move in the illegal immigration crisis. The city is suing upstate counties for refusing to take in illegal immigrants. New York City on Wednesday announced a lawsuit against more than 30 upstate counties that are refusing to take in illegal immigrants sent from the city. The counties issued executive orders banning hotels from hosting the illegal immigrants. These counties have implemented misguided and ex unlawful executive orders premised on false claims that the prospect of a few hundred asylum seekers sheltered at the city's expense across multiple counties constitute an emergency and imperil public safety. New York City is asking the court to declare the executive orders void and to stop the counties from enforcing them. Some of the counties also filed their own lawsuits against the city. New York City is seeking to have all the relevant lawsuits consolidated and litigated in New York County. These executive orders burden and obstruct New York City's lawful and responsible effort to address an ongoing statewide emergency in a manner that is explicitly permitted by the law and required by statewide emergency. City officials said over 74,000 illegal immigrants have come through the city's intake center since last spring, and over 47,000 are currently in the city's care. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries on Wednesday helped New York City secure $104 million in funding from FEMA to deal with the crisis. We have already spent over $1.2 billion and expect to spend over $4.3 billion through next June. But it's clear that without the efforts of congressional leadership and New York City would not be able to receive this additional federal funding. New York City officials again called on Congress to take actions on the crisis, saying the city cannot handle this alone. People want to work. That is what they came here for, to be able to start their new life and to get connected and on their journey to get resettled. 
We need work authorization for the asylum seekers, and we need Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, the U.S. dollar is the king of all the world's currencies, but could that change? Lawmakers try to find out. And more findings on TikTok's ties with Beijing. A newly obtained code sample shows that China-based engineers worked on the app's source code. That and more when we return. Welcome back. Could the U.S. dollar lose its place as the king of currencies? If it does, it'll have a strong impact on America's economy and national security. Lawmakers just held a hearing to address this question. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Is the U.S. dollar's status as the king of currencies at risk? During a congressional hearing, experts said yes. Short term, I think the risk is that we continue to see diversification away from the dollar. Longer term, I think the, the bigger risk is that foreign investors no longer perceive the United States federal government debt to be as safe and risk-free as it is today perceived. Tyler Goodspeed is a fellow at Stanford University. He says that having the world's dominant currency is a net benefit to the United States. Right now, the U.S. dollar is the entire world's reserve currency. This means that out of all the currencies in the world, central banks worldwide have decided the U.S. dollar should be the major currency in their reserves. Right now, the dollar makes up 60% of all their reserves. This allows the country to borrow more, dominate the financial markets, and have global influence. But China has said this is a form of financial hegemony that's bad for the global economy. In my view, Chairman Xi poses the most serious threat. He has a vision of China as the middle kingdom to which all of the nations on the periphery ultimately will pay tribute. Marshall Billingsley is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He says countries like China, Russia, and Brazil all want to topple the dollar's dominance. He believes China wants its own currency, the yuan, to become the king of currencies. But that's very unlikely in the short term for two reasons. One, China's a currency manipulator. And so people who hold the yuan are also holding a lot of risk that it may not have the same value tomorrow that it has today. And two, they have a very restrictive uh, 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 capital uh, outflow uh, regime that basically prevents you from moving currencies out of the country. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar is still strong. 88% of all transactions worldwide are done with the U.S. dollar. It's still considered the safest and most liquid asset in the world. Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. Investors are awaiting the Federal Reserve's policy meeting next week. The question for many is whether Fed officials will keep the interest rate where it is or whether they will raise it again. Here's Don Ma with NTD Business. Now, will the Fed keep interest rates steady at the next meeting or will officials raise rates by another 25 basis points? One group of Fed officials would like to pause their campaign of rate increases after 10 straight hikes to allow time to look around and assess whether higher borrowing rates are slowing inflation down. Meanwhile, another group still sees inflation to be too high and sees another one or two hikes to be appropriate beginning next week. And here to talk to me is Tavi Costa, portfolio manager at Crescat Capital. Now, the big question uh, a lot of investors are wondering right now is, will the Fed hike or pause at the next meeting? You know, as a portfolio manager yourself, what, what do you think? 
That's a good question. I, I'm also struggling to answer that question. I think right now in the markets is about probability of 30% of increase. I would say that um, I think it's more a lot closer to 50-50% personally. That's the way I see it. Um, I don't know if that matters as much as the market thinks it does, meaning I think just the fact that interest rates will stay where they are and continue to stay where they are, it will, in my opinion, uh, unleash even more pressure in, in some parts of the market. And you said something interesting on Twitter. Uh, the government is sort of undoing what the Fed is doing with their inflation fight. I, I want you to exp uh, elaborate on that because the Fed is trying to tighten monetary condition. Meanwhile, the government's aggressive fiscal policy is going in the opposite direction. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's precisely correct, in my opinion. I'm doing it because government deficits are at levels, first of all, relative to how low unemployment rate is, we've never seen such an aggressive fiscal policy. So you know, if you think about it, um, fiscal policy is supposed to be uh, more excessive at times when you are in the middle of a turmoil where unemployment rates are uh, historically high, you've got a recession already in place and so forth. And so the government spending increases in order to uh, an attempt to fix the problem. And I don't think we're seeing that today. What we're seeing is large fiscal policy not related to a recessionary problem that has caused government to, to spend more. In fact, what's happening here is just the, uh, a reflection of how extended, extensive is the, the fiscal agenda. You've got social programs to a degree that we haven't seen in the last decades. You've got really the Green Revolution being part of that, the infrastructure developments occurring as a way to avoid China reliance, Chinese reliance and Russian reliance and other authoritarian regimes that we've been dependent on, um, and military spending, which is historical lows currently that are likely to continue to rise uh, to levels that we've seen in the 60s or so, which were about 9% of GDP, and today is less than 3%. I see. All right. Thank you so much today, Tavi. Always great speaking to you. Thanks for having me. Some Fed officials think that pausing rate hikes to ensure that the Fed doesn't go too far might help achieve the tantalizing prospect of a soft landing. This is the hoped-for scenario in which the Fed would manage to tame inflation without causing a recession, or at least not a very deep one. Elon Musk has chosen confrontation. That's what the EU Commission said on Monday as it blames the Twitter CEO for not complying with new regulations over content moderation. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. The European Commission said on Monday that Twitter has chosen confrontation. The platform's owner, Elon Musk, has left the European Union's code of conduct against online disinformation. Although this code is voluntary, the EU plans to implement a new regulation in August, called the EU's Digital Services Act, or DSA. Twitter will have to comply with it to operate in Europe. The regulations will decree how social media platforms tackle harmful content. During a conference at the French Senate last week, Associate Professor of Law Guillaume Zambrano said the notion of harmful content is vague, as defined by the regulation. It says that operators of digital services such as Google, YouTube, Instagram and Twitter have an obligation to remove illegal content from the Internet 
as soon as they become aware of it, or as soon as they are notified of the existence of illegal content. Except that this illegal content, nowhere in the regulations is there a definition of what constitutes illegal content. Examples of harmful content are personalized ads from minors, disinformation over elections or public health, and cyberbullying. Zambrano says the regulation lacks a strict definition, which means opinions or any information labeled wrong by the Commission might fall into this category. This law gives the European Commission complete power to decide what constitutes manipulation of information, hate speech or harassment. With this regulation, we can do anything. We can force Twitter, for example, to close the Twitter account of Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. The new DSA rules apply to 19 companies, most of them created in the United States. They may be fined up to 6% of their global annual turnover, or face temporary bans. The Commission also plans to access data and algorithms of these platforms to check whether they're promoting harmful content. This is the law in place to force companies to become censorship bodies. So for me, this is it. It puts Europe on the same democratic footing as China in the way it creates an information control system. This system will filter all information coming from outside, from the Internet in general, before the public can have access to it. The Commission plans to visit the Twitter headquarters in the U.S. at the end of June. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. A new report on TikTok's China ties. The app source code has been written by engineers based in China. That's according to a code sample obtained by an Australian newspaper. TikTok has been downplaying ties with its Chinese owner ByteDance, especially amid Western bans of the video sharing app. But a code sample recently seen by the Australia's Financial Review may defeat that effort. The sample appears to control broadcasting and moderation of live streaming. It shows at least a dozen usernames with email addresses linked to ByteDance. Sources that the Financial Review did not disclose confirm that many of these engineers worked in mainland China. James Patterson is Australia's Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity. He said the code sample shows that engineers working on it in China can access user data and are captured by the intelligence and security laws of the Chinese Communist Party. Under its national intelligence law, Beijing can force all entities and citizens to cooperate with so-called national intelligence efforts. Patterson warned that the CCP can also compel TikTok staff to suppress or elevate pro-Beijing content, or South Division within Western democracies. In July 2022, TikTok Australia admitted that its employees in China could access Australian user data. Over two dozen U.S. states have banned the video sharing app on government devices. Last month, Montana passed a new law further banning its use on personal devices. Coming up a day after the shocking PGA and Live Golf merger and not all the players seem very happy. We'll have analysis of who the deal really favors. And some scuba divers are taking the classroom to the ocean. A special program allows students to see the wonders of the sea right from their seats. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. Moving to sports news, we have NDD's Dave Martin with us. Dave, now that the dust has settled on this live PGA merger, what's been the reaction in the golf world? Well, yeah, I mean, that all depends on who you talk to. The PGA executives, they did very well. Like Jay Monahan, the CEO, 
he is still going to be like the head of this new venture. So you've got to think they did very well. You know, the, they only gave up one seat at the table. What they want, they have a seat at the big table. The live golfers, on the other hand, they, I wouldn't say they did poorly, but they at least have the golf world ranking points. Uh, now they can already get into the majors, but with these ranking points, it'll certainly help them in the future. Now, I think the, the people who didn't make out so well, though, probably are the PGA players themselves. And Dave, speaking of Jay, there was a report that the players had a very heated meeting with Jay Monahan regarding the merger. What was their issue? I think they feel betrayed. I mean, Rory McIlroy said he felt like a sacrificial lamb. You know, some of these players who turned down the Live Golf offers, and we're talking offers in the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, they thought they were doing the right thing, helping out the PGA kind of in this battle against Live. And it really, it helped the PGA retain their value in these negotiations. But unfortunately, um, the PGA then all of a sudden decided to merge with them. And they left a lot of money on the table here. So I don't really see, you know, how they're going to be made whole in this new venture. And Dave, moving on to the NBA Finals, Game 3 is tonight. What's your take on the action thus far? Well, Game 2 Sunday night, I thought, I thought it went so similar to Games 1 and 2 in the Miami-Boston series, where Miami came back in the fourth quarter and kind of stunned the Celtics. They kind of did the same thing to Denver. And, you know, against the Celtics, the Celtics looked shell-shocked by Game 3. I, I don't see that happening tonight for Denver. I think they'll be able to bounce back. Um, I mean, it was kind of a stunning loss. I think Denver gets the win tonight, but you know, Miami, they continue to surprise me. I keep picking against them and they really have surprised a lot of people this postseason. And speaking of surprises, what has been Miami's strategy? Well, for one thing, they keep hitting their threes. I mean, they have really been hot the entire postseason hitting their three-point shots. You know, another thing is Eric Spolstra, who probably doesn't get his due as one of the better coaches in the league. He made some good moves in the fourth quarter. They went to a zone defense that pretty much uh, stopped Denver's pick-and-roll offense that they like to run the fourth quarter with Jokic and uh, Jamal Murray. Uh, also, Jimmy Butler got going in the fourth quarter, as he seems to do every postseason game. And when Butler gets going and they're hitting their threes, uh, they're really difficult to beat. And Dave, actually speaking of Miami, it was just reported this afternoon that soccer star Lionel Messi is suddenly coming there. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, another stunning uh, sports move today. Messi's coming to the NMLS. He's going to play for Miami, which is owned by David Beckham, who had a similar path, of course, about 15 years ago. Uh, he, Messi, is going to get an undisclosed salary, but he's also going to get an option to be a part-time owner of Miami. Plus, he's going to get a percentage of the league's TV revenue. Uh, so it could be a pretty, uh, pretty good move for him. Certainly a huge move for the MLS, a uh, big move for that uh, organization for sure. Dave Martin, thank you so much. Thanks, Tiff. To celebrate and appreciate all things ocean, divers in California held a live broadcast underwater. They spoke directly to classrooms across the state. Let's dive into the story with NTD's David Lamb. It's nice, we're chilling down here, literally. It's about 50-something degrees, and 
expert scuba divers went underwater to give several classrooms across the state a special look on Wednesday. Patrick and I are underwater here on the central coast of California near Monterey. We are in Point Lobos State Marine Reserve. This is part of Ocean Week, ahead of World Ocean Day on June 8th. NTD spoke to diver Erica Delamar. We just gave two programs to two different classrooms, one down in San Diego uh, and one up in Eureka in Humboldt County. So we just talked to different students in different parts of the state about our beautiful marine protected area here. Students in San Diego and Eureka had a chance to see what it's about, with no divide between land or ocean. Does Chuck use photosynthesis? Yes, they do. You can see just from the color of the kelp that it likes to photosynthesize. It's a brown algae. California state parks also held a logo competition with over 130 student participants. This year's winner was submitted by Lily H. The kelp forest is by far one of the most amazing things to explore on the California coast. Um, along our entire coastline, we have 124 marine protected areas. So essentially these underwater protected areas, similar to our state parks. The California Department of Parks and Recreation manages nearly 280 state park units in California and over 300 miles of coastline. Representatives hope to preserve the ocean for generations to come. We certainly would encourage everybody, if you live near the coast, to go out and do a beach cleanup or go learn something from a local park or agency. But how we celebrate is bringing the live underwater aspect, which is really where all the magic happens, to as many students as we can. Today's live program goes one-to-one -one with a couple of classrooms, very special. We all play a really important role in protecting our global ocean. A lot of people think the ocean separates us from other countries and other nations and other continents, but the ocean truly connects us all. According to the NOAA, the Pacific Ocean holds over half of Earth's open water supply. It was named by explorer Ferdinand Magellan in 1520, who called this body of water Pacific due to the calmness of the water at the time. Pacific means peaceful. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.